We are indeed bound for that land. And isn't it meaningful to call it the promised land? I am bound for the promised land because that reminds us that God himself has promised it. No mere wishful thinking here. He's going to get us there because the God who has made that promise keeps his promises. And we bear that in mind as we turn to his word because it is by means of the ministry of his word that he does keep us so that we press on toward that land so that we finally reach it. God blesses the ministry of his word in our midst. And so we turn now to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And just to get our bearings as we turn there, where are we at this point in 2 Samuel? We've been making our way through this book in recent weeks. We've reached the point when David is king. He's king over all Israel, and as we've seen lately, these are good days for him. His fortunes are rising, his victories are mounting, his international reputation is growing. These are good days for David. And remember, these are momentous days for him as well. Remember, last week what we saw was David having the Ark of God brought to Jerusalem. So that this city that he captured from the Jebusites, Jerusalem, was now going to be the geographical center for the worship of God in the Old Testament. And it was going to stay that way all the way down to the time of Jesus. So that was really a big deal, what we saw last week when David has the Ark of God brought to Jerusalem. These are momentous days for David, and not just for him, but for the people that he rules. But as blessed as David was at this point, as much as he had been favored by God in all of these different ways, and no doubt he was, he's about to be stunned by the revelation of just how much God intends to exalt him above and beyond the heights that he has already reached. And it's here in 2 Samuel 7 that we get that. We get the revelation of God of his purposes for David, and then we get David's response to that revelation, his response in prayer, a prayer of surprise and humility and gratitude and petition all rolled up into one. And the chapter falls neatly into those two sections. God's word to David, what he intends to do for him, and then David's word back to God, the way he responds in prayer. And so the plan is we're going to take these two weeks, this week and next week, to bask in this glorious chapter, which is undoubtedly a high point. In all of Scripture, 2 Samuel 7. So this week, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 17. God's word to David, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll come back to this chapter and we'll keep going and listen in on David's prayer in reply. So let me go ahead and read for us. We are going to focus on verses 1 through 17. I may read a few verses beyond it just so we can begin to gauge how David reacts. But listen now to the word of God, 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, 
See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then just listen to how David begins to reply. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So there is God's word to David through Nathan in the beginning of David's reply. David says this is instruction, so we should seek the Lord's favor that we be instructed by it. Let's pray together. Father, we take that personally, that this is instruction the word that you have spoken. And we would be instructed this day, and that's why we come to you now in prayer. Would you instruct us for your word, the scriptures, the writings, are profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and training in righteousness. So would you teach and train us now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a familiar phrase that people will sometimes resort to, whether it's on on a game show and the person who's just won is being told how much they've won, or it's a birthday party or a retirement party, and the person who's being celebrated is being given all of these different gifts and honors. There's a familiar phrase that you might hear in a setting like that when they want to communicate to that person that... The prizes or the gifts aren't done. They're going to keep coming. And that familiar phrase is, but wait, there's more. You might think that all of your prizes have been revealed. You might think that all of your gifts have been given. You might think that all of your honors have been bestowed, but you would be mistaken. But wait, there's more. And you can picture the look of surprise that dawns on that person's face as that realization dawns on them. They're overwhelmed by it all. It's almost too much. They're practically running out of ways to say thank you, especially because the latest prize and gifts and honors that keep coming, they're even more amazing than what's been given so far. The real stunners were saved for last. So it's one thing to be told that you've won the new luggage set, But wait, we're also sending you on a European river cruise to use it. It's one thing to be taken out to your favorite restaurant on your birthday. But wait, we've flown in all of your old college buddies and they're sitting around the table waiting for you. It's one thing to be told at your retirement party that you can take your nameplate off your office door as a souvenir. That's a nice touch. But wait... The board has decided to name this building after you because that's how much you've meant here. So you can take your nameplate, but we're going to keep your name. We're going to honor your name. You're going to be remembered here. It's a gasp moment. But wait, there's more. And it's so much more than you've even been given thus far. Well, 2 Samuel 7, in David's life, is a, but wait, there's more moment. This is a gasp moment for David. As I said before, this is the moment when his breath is practically taken away at the revelation of just how much God intends to exalt him higher than the heights he's already attained. Remember, this is a man who was a shepherd boy. And God even reminds him of that here. Not like he'd forgotten. This is a man who was the youngest of eight brothers. In some ways, he grew up the least impressive of all the brothers. And by the time this chapter opens, 2 Samuel 7, he's the king. He's God's king. Over God's people. And his fortunes are rising and his victories are mounting. And one of those victories was to gain Jerusalem for the worship of God. Totally understandable if at this point David's thinking to himself, what more could I possibly want? 
perfectly natural if David's thinking, surely these heights are as high as it gets. At least as high as it's going to get for me. And not only that, but it's precisely that mindset that leads him to think, instead of asking for more from God, it's time for me to give back. Instead of wanting to reach higher personal heights, it's time for me to exalt the name of God in a new way and not my own. Not my own name. Totally understandable. Perfectly natural for David to be thinking along those lines. David, you've been so staggeringly exalted from what you were to what you've become. David, your God has positively poured out blessing upon blessing in your life. But wait, there's more. And what makes this particular more here in this chapter to be so stunning for David is the thought that this is a promise now that reaches beyond his lifetime. In a sense, it reaches down to eternity. Just when David might think that that he's, he's risen high enough and it's time to start giving back, He has no idea the word that he's about to hear from God through the prophet Nathan. So let's walk through this passage, verses 1 through 17. We're going to notice especially the things that God promises David here. And then when we've done that, we're going to take those promises, and there are going to be four of them, and we're going to keep running with them. We're going to run all the way to Jesus, where they all come true, and then we're going to keep running beyond Jesus to our own lives and what this means for us in Jesus today. So let's take a look. What unfolds here in the first part of 2 Samuel 7? Take a look at verse 1. Here the stage is set. Verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So there the stage is set. That's what we've come to. That's the state of affairs. David has a place. He's got his own impressive house to live in. Solid. Solid as cedar. And David has peace. The Lord has given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So that's what we've come to. That's the state of affairs for David. That's how blessed he is. So what do you get for the man who has everything? Here's a man who feels like he has everything. And not only that, but he also feels like the Lord, the one who actually made and owns and bestows everything. David feels like the Lord does not have everything from his people that he's due. Look at verse 2. David says to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And just to have him put it that way creates this this jarring juxtaposition. David has the sense that there's something wrong with this picture. There's something wrong with the fact that David has a place, a solid, permanent place, but the ark of God does not. The ark of God, which was the symbol of the presence of God among his people. David has a sense that this is unacceptable, this discrepancy between where he lives and where the ark currently lives. 
And Nathan's response, look at verse 3. Nathan's response is, in a sense, to bless him. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. Must have seemed perfectly reasonable to Nathan what David appears to be proposing here. So that Nathan says that based upon his own sense of things. But then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and the Lord says, in effect, that's not my sense of things. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. And this this word from God that's for David through Nathan, it begins by looking back. There's a kind of historical review here. The Lord talks about how patient he's been with his people. He's never insisted that his people build him the kind of place, a place for his ark that he's due. He's never insisted on that. And then... This historical review gets personal because the Lord begins to remind David of his own personal history. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. He's saying, David, I have raised you. I exalted you. And then, as he keeps going, the Lord says, David, I'm going to raise you higher still. And this is where the promises, the remarkable promises begin. And we're going to note four of them here. And if it helps, they all start with the letter P. The first is the promise of prominence. Because what does God say next? There in verse 9, he says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. He's saying, David, I'm going to give you fame. I'm going to give you renown. And there's nothing wrong with being famous so long as the famous one doesn't let it go to his head. Especially when the famous one is famous precisely because it's known far and wide that the Lord is with him. And that's what's going on here. There's the promise of prominence. David, I will make for you a great name. The second promise is the promise of place. Look at verse 10. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So now the promises are are bigger than just David himself. Now the promises expand to take in All the people. The promise of place. Here's the third promise. It's the promise of peace. Because God goes on. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So these these last two promises, place and peace. Well, when the chapter got started... We noted place and peace, right? David had his place, and the people of God were in the land, and we noted peace. The Lord had given David victory and rest. And yet now, place and peace are forward-looking promises. So it must be that 
though David and the people with him have begun to taste of these things, place and peace, it must be that God has in mind for David and the people a fullness of these blessings that they have not yet experienced. So prominence and place and peace, and then there's one more, and it is posterity. Posterity. Because God says, again, verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here the Lord is saying, David, you've proposed making a house for me. No, I'm going to make a house for you, not a building. You've got your house of cedar. David, I'm going to give you something far more glorious. In the solid house you live in on earth, I'm going to give you a kingly line, and that kingly line will never end. David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And, and he goes on from there, verses 12 and following, to unpack that promise. That David's going to have a son, and that son's going to reign. That son will build the house for me that you have in mind, David, the symbol of my presence that you know I deserve. He says, David, I'll I'll have a father-son relationship with the one who follows you, and I'll be a good father to him, which means, among other things, when he sins, I'll chasten him. But, David, my love will last. Your house will last. Your kingly line will last forever. So those four promises that God makes to David here, prominence, place, peace, and posterity. Nathan gets that word from God that he's to relay as a dutiful prophet, and he does. And he speaks that word to David. So these are Great and precious promises, to be sure, to borrow some language from Second Peter. Great and precious promises that God has made to David here about what's to come. Well, now the question becomes, now we've, we've made our way through our passage, we've noticed those four promises. Now the question becomes, whatever came of them? Because these are remarkable words, to be sure. In 2 Samuel 7, if you keep turning the pages of your Bible after this chapter, what do you find? What comes of these four promises? Well, after David reigned, his son Solomon reigned in his place. And God proved true to his word. David himself was known far and wide. He was that during his lifetime. He was that after his lifetime. When his son Solomon reigned gloriously in his place. And Solomon was known far and wide as David's son. So prominence. That was fulfilled. So too those promises of place and peace. We can take those two together. Because under Solomon, the territory of Israel was larger than it had ever been. And the nation of Israel knew peace like they'd never known it before. The very name Solomon is related to the word shalom, which means peace. And the name fit. It fit the times. The reign of Solomon, son of David. 
was a time like that. Listen to 1 Kings 4. I love this passage. Here's a description of things at their best under Solomon. It says this, 1 Kings 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Those were good days. A great land, place, and sweet rest on every side. Peace. So prominence, place, peace, and then finally posterity. Well, Solomon himself was that. He was the son of David who reigned in his father's place. And his reign was quickly established. And during his reign, sure enough, what did he accomplish? He oversaw the building of a temple for God in Jerusalem. All of that came true. And you know what else came true? The chastening part. Remember, that was part of God's promise to David in our chapter this morning. God said, when your son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. The Lord proved true to that word as well. That's not a bad way of summing up the entire history of Israel after the point when Solomon lost his spiritual and moral bearings. Their history for centuries after that boiled down to this. The Lord chastened his people, but he never withdrew his love for the sake of David, because of his promise, because of the covenant by which he bound himself to David. So all that to say, even if you just flip a few pages after 2 Samuel 7 in your Bible, and and you chart Israel's history in David's reign and right after it. You can see these things coming true. But there's no greater fullness than that which we see when we keep turning all the way to Jesus. King Jesus. The son of David. In him, all of this came true. Isaiah 9 foresaw this. Isaiah 9 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So the prophets are beginning to to fan into flame these great expectations that a king's going to come like the people of God have never known who will reign on the throne of David. And in the fullness of time, an angel made an announcement. The angel Gabriel, Luke chapter 1, says to Mary, Your son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you've got these great expectations fostered by Isaiah and the other prophets. And then you have this thrilling announcement in the fullness of time. The angel to Mary saying, the day has come, the time has come. And then sure enough, this one who's born 
grows, grows into a man, and emerges on the scene, and begins to go around teaching and preaching and healing, begins to go around ministering. And and imagine those days. It might have seemed, apart from faith, apart from, from God's light, it very well might have seemed that there was no way on earth that this man could be the messianic king in the line of David. Th- think about all four of our, our P promises today. And think about the life of Jesus from a worldly vantage point, And not just his life, but finally the way he dies. So what about prominence? Well... From a worldly point of view, he's a nobody from Nazareth, and nothing good comes from Nazareth. If anything, he earns a name for himself as a troublemaker and a reject, rejected by the leadership. So that's prominence. Well, what about place? Jesus himself said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And when he goes back to his hometown, how do they respond? They want to throw him off a cliff. So much for place. And what about our third? What about peace? What did he know of peace? His ministry, practically from the beginning, was met with opposition and unrest and alienation and strife. So much for peace. And then finally, the fourth, posterity. Not just the obvious fact that he didn't have any children, but it's more than that. It's the fact that apparently, apparently, from a worldly point of view, he died a failure. No lasting legacy beyond the lasting crushing disappointment of his disciples as they watch him get crucified and buried. So yeah, there's going to be a messianic king in the line of David. Those great expectations had been created. But you might think, From a natural point of view, there's no way that this one, with his life like that, with his ministry like that, with his death like that, there's no way this one can be that that king. But then what a difference three days can make. Think about the resurrection. Imagine the resurrection now. And, And the meaning of that with respect to all four of our promises today, and the brilliant light that his resurrection from the tomb shines on all four of our promises, beginning with prominence, when he raises his son from the dead. It's as if the father is saying, My son, you who have been despised and rejected by men, Watch me now as I give you a name like the great ones of the earth have never imagined. Son of God. Son of David. You who bear the name of David. Watch me now as I raise the name of David in you to heights that David himself never could have imagined. Staggering prominence. And so too, our second promise. Place. Think of how the resurrection changes everything. Think of Psalm 2. The Father says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. My son, before you had nowhere to lay your head, I'm going to give you the world. And I'm going to give you the mission 
to create a new world out of this one. Talk about place. And what about peace? As he's raised from the dead, the Father is saying to the Son, your warfare is over. Enter now into the shalom, the glorious resurrection peace that's rightly yours. And then finally, posterity. The Father says to the Son, my plan from the beginning was that you should be the firstborn of many brothers. Now, by the Spirit, bring them to life. Make them your own. So you see all of these great and precious promises made to David. Yes, we can turn a few pages in the Old Testament and see them come through on one level. But, oh, keep turning. Keep turning in your Bible all the way to Jesus, especially the resurrection of Jesus and his, his ascension to the Father's right hand and his reign and ministry ever since. And that's when you stand in awe of these promises come to fruition. And then I want to say one more time, keep going. Because these promises keep going beyond Christ to you and me. Because as Christians, we're united with Christ. We're found in Christ now by faith. So this isn't just a trip down memory lane. This isn't just an interesting tour of biblical history. Take these things to heart. Take them personally. So, for example, prominence. Think about what this means for us as those who have come to believe in Jesus. As those who have come to to embrace his name. To embrace the cause of his name. Think think of the, the comfort, the reassurance that we can glean from this. In the course of human history, how many people signed on to religions and philosophies thinking, this is it. This is the answer. This is the one that's going to last and someday everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to know the name of this particular founder or philosopher and today those religions and philosophies almost nobody remembers. Nobody can name because they don't really have a name anymore. Relegated to the dustbin of history. Forgotten. In the profoundest sense, nameless. Christian, take heart. You have not signed on to a cause like that. You you have signed up, you have signed on for a cause whose destiny is this, Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is as prominent as you can get. That's what's in store at the end of the age for Jesus, the son of David. And therefore, that's in store for us at the end of the age. For we shall find ourselves vindicated as those who took hold of him by faith. One day, everybody will know his name. So I say to you today, don't be ashamed to be called Christian. To be named a follower of the Christ. So there's that. There's prominence. Let's take our next two together again. Place and peace. Because they go together so tightly. Place and peace. 
Sometimes in this life we, we get the feeling, sometimes we're positively overwhelmed with the feeling that there's no place on earth that feels like home anymore. Where can I go? Where do I belong? I wonder at times if we feel that especially acutely here in the D.C. area because it is a fairly transient area, and I say that as a native Pittsburgher who still feels like a boy from Pittsburgh at heart. And sometimes in this life we get the feeling that we're just so tired of fighting. Even if it is a good fight, the fight of faith, I'm so tired of fighting and I want rest. Will I ever get rest? I've mentioned before that I, I do some reading now and then on, on World War I history, and I've got those, those books on the shelf. And some of the most powerful reading I've done, and you've probably read books like this as well, are the, not just the, the historical accounts, but the books that have the letters and the diary excerpts. And it is so poignant how that, that double longing for place and peace comes out in those works, going back over a hundred years to World War I. And, and, and it, it's a soldier who, who's away from home, who aches for the place that is home, but then back home, it's the civilians who are finding home disrupted, if not destroyed. And it feels like they have no place. And it's starting to feel like they'll never know Peace, either. When is this war going to end? Maybe especially because when it began, they thought it would last weeks, and they got on those trains and went off to the battlefields singing and laughing. And four years later, they weren't laughing anymore. Will this never end? Will we never know peace? And that's just it. That is such a profound longing that double longing for place and peace that comes out, whether it's in historical accounts or in our own lives, in our own souls. Christian, again, I say, take heart, take hope. God said to David, I will point a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. They will dwell there. They will be disturbed no more. Well, God says to you, Christian, I have a place for you. I have a place for you where you're going to live and serve and thrive and feel at home, the world to come, and Christ is going to come back and usher it in. Christian, I have shalom for you. And then finally, posterity. Jesus sits on the throne of his father, David. David, your throne shall be established forever. Well, Christian, that means that your king, King Jesus, is going to reign forever. And that, too, is sweet comfort when we look back upon history and when we think about our own experience in this world. Sometimes when you're reading history, certainly when you're reading biblical history, like the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you're reading along and it just seems to be one lousy king after another. And then all of a sudden, as if dropped from heaven, there's one who's different, and he's faithful, and he's wise, and he's good. And you're relieved, but at the same time, you know deep down that it's not going to last. Because this king's going to falter at some point, or he's going to be overthrown at some point, or he's going to finish well, but that's just it. He's going to finish and die. And it won't be long before there's another king who's not like he was. You don't have to live in fear that that's ever going to happen with your king Jesus. 
perfectly faithful and almighty and all-wise, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what's so thrilling about that Isaiah 9 passage I read before. To us a child is born. And then the announcement of Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 1. In both places you have the idea that he's going to reign on the throne of David. And in both places it's told that he'll reign forever. It's almost as if it's too good to be true. The thought that this reign's going to last and last forever. And last gloriously, because that's so unlike what we're used to. It's as if we have to be told it again and again and again through the prophets and through angels and apostles. His reign shall never end. It's not too good to be true. It's infinitely good, but it's also true. So Christian, on all of those fronts, on all four of them, all four promises, take heart this day. And I want to say this as well to anyone who's joined us today who is not a Christian today. If nothing else today, I'd love this as a first step. If you might come to see that our message to you, the message that we proclaim from this pulpit, that we seek to live out in our lives as Christians, the Christian gospel, it's very much of this character that we've been considering today. The Christian gospel has a But wait, there's more feel to it. I don't know what you've heard about the message of Christianity, but I'm guessing that at least you've probably heard this much, that what we preach and believe as Christians, among other things, is that if you come to faith in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. And that's true. And that's glorious. The forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled with God like that, that's wonderful. But wait, there's more. Come to have faith in Christ, and it's not just that your sins are forgiven, it's also that God looks upon you as somebody who has perfectly passed the obedience test that he set up for the human race in the beginning. And that's even more glorious. That's what we call justification. That's even more wonderful. But wait, there's more. Come to have faith in Christ, and and you don't just get those courtroom benefits, forgiveness and justification. It's not just courtroom, it's also family room. Because then God actually welcomes you into his spiritual, eternal, worldwide family as his child. And that's even more glory. But wait, there's more. Because your heart's also changed. Which means... Which means your ways and your life is changed throughout this life. And it's also that you come to have a place in this family, the church, throughout this life. And as if all of that weren't staggering enough, one more time we can say, but wait. Oh, there is so much more. Kind of like David, there are promises that reach beyond your own life to the life to come. Our hope as Christians, our hope for the future, beyond this life, beyond this age is that all four of those promises are going to come to fruition in the age to come. And you will behold them, and and it'll take your breath away, and, and like David will say, who are we? You'll say, who am I? So if you've joined us today and your faith is not in Christ, 
Just know today you've joined a company of people here in Fairfax, Virginia, who are gladly growing for a lifetime in the sweet realization that this just keeps getting better and better. And I say, join us. Join us in that very same faith and, and grow with us in that same grasp. And that's finally a good word for all of us today, isn't it? All of us who are in Christ. We stop today at the end of verse 17. Tune in next week, and we'll hear King David say, Who am I? Surprised, humbled, grateful, trusting. Who am I, Lord? You've already blessed me so much. And now this, the gospel we've embraced today is of that same character. And it ought to drive us to our knees in the same way. So let us pray. Lord, we do already anticipate David's reply. We say, who are we? We stand in awe of how blessed we are already. And then to think that Christ is coming back one day. And when he does, he shall bring these things to fullness that we've never known. Prominence, place, peace, posterity, we thank you for great and precious promises made to David. We hold on to them. For they are promises now that are for us in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.